Paragon Church, you may be seated. I'm going to read this morning from the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Just a few short verses to remind us why we are here. Jesus is teaching his disciples and the crowd on the hill, and he says this, You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your Heavenly Father. Let us pray. God, we come before you and we just thank you that you are holy, that you are worthy, that you in your great mercy and compassion sent your Son to die on a cross for us. That though our sins are as scarlet, you have made us white as snow. That it is about you and your glory that we exist and we are here. Let us hear the words from Ephesians about unity and serving. And let us know that by this example they will know that we are yours. Let us commit today to hear your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you to convict our hearts and draw us closer. Sanctify us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. We are sinners and we are in need of you. Mm. It is in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Bruce. I'm going to ask you to open up the book of Ephesians chapter 4 as I dismiss our kids out these side doors over here. So as they go, I want to welcome you to Walk Worthy, our second half of the book of Ephesians. And that starts in Ephesians chapter 4. Last week we started the transition from Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 to Ephesians chapter 4 through 6. 1 through 3 talked about the fact that we are, by God's grace, made worthy through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Basically, from March through May, we looked at how Paul talked about our identity and what he says about the riches that we have in that identity. And the fact that Paul revealed a great mystery to the church, and that great mystery was that through salvation, we become one family. We become one new people group in Christ. We become the church. And as Paul was doing that, he transitioned from the fact that we are one church, that we need to be unified as that church. And that's where we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 4, really all the way through 6. Last week, we started to see the the transition. That transition went from the riches of our salvation to the responsibility of our salvation. We are challenged, or as Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, we are urged 
depending upon the translation, to walk worthy or to live worthy. Basically, conduct your lives in such a way that you are seen, as Pastor Bruce read from Matthew chapter 5, seen by men that we give praise to the Father. That is what we are called to do. In short, the first half of the book is who we are in Christ, and the second half of the book of Ephesians is how to live in thankfulness and gratefulness because of who we are in Christ. Paul started this transition with the idea of unity last week. Unity in the church. We found in verse 3, these words, he says, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit by the bond of peace. The reason that he stresses unity was found, and reason how is found in verse 2. The glory of God and the growth of His church. And it says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And that foundation for unity is built on seven things that he lists out. We talked about those seven things as we closed up last week. And that was one body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. That is the foundation that is laid out there for the growth of the church. Not just the church like Paragon Church, but the church, the universal church. It's God's church and it all starts with common ground. After Paul lays down the foundation of unity, he reminds us that unity and oneness aren't to be confused with uniformity and sameness. Unity and oneness don't mean uniformity and sameness. And that's where we find ourselves today looking at chapter 4, verse 7. And we'll be going through verse 16. He talks about the fact that the growth of God's church isn't just built on the unity of the believers, but also the diversity of the believers. So if you have your Bibles open, I would love for you to follow along with me as we read in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. It says, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. For it says, For he ascended on high, and he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves, blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But, speaking truth and love, let us grow in every way into Him who is the head, Christ. From Him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Let's pray together. Fathers, you've laid this out in front of us about the diversity of each and every one of us using our gifts for your glory and the growth of your church. May you speak to us today. May you challenge our hearts to grow closer to you. We pray it in your name. Amen. I've been in ministry now for a lot of years. And over the years, I've seen different, and we'll use the word models, of church growth. And I've seen a lot of those models come, and I've seen even more go. And there have been models that are all over the map. One is the sameness. 
churches built on specific ethnic groups or specific socioeconomic groups because people feel more comfortable with people that are like them. I've seen models that are built on a customer business strategy or a customer business, consumer business mentality. And that mentality is the same type of thinking that that a McDonald's might have or a Starbucks might have or, or the Apple Store or any really any major brand that you can think of. How do we best meet the needs of the consumer? And we see churches built around that, even to the point of, of having these satellite campuses because we want to make sure we have everything you need close to your house. That's why there's all different stores close to your house. You have that same thing with the churches. How can you have that personality? How can we fix our services around what people want instead of what people need? I've seen what they call seeker-sensitive models. Maybe if you grew up in the 90s, you remember that term because that was a big thing in the 90s. Want to get as many people into the seats and get it filled so we were going to appeal to them in, in the way of entertainment. And we're going to appeal to them in the way of TED Talk type motivational speeches. Then there's the complete flip side of that that we've also seen growing in recent years. It's like an old school model. That old school model is very liturgical, where it's very rote and everything is to the letter. How many of you guys grew up in a church that had the order of service written in the bulletin? Yeah, there's a couple of you who remember that. You'd be like, where are we anyway? Yeah, I, I remember doing that too, counting down the minutes until it was done. But you had those type of things. And the reason why they do that is because that's the way the old Church fathers did it. And now there's a new one that's really kicking up, and and obviously COVID helped it out, but there's the online church model. And I have nothing wrong with online, by the way, but in this model, they've actually got where you can create your own avatar. And you can go into a digital animated building and have avatar communications. So basically you are at church wherever you log into your computer at. So you have all of these different ways, and I only touched on just a couple of them, and there are pros and there are cons to each one of them, and I'm sure we could sit back and we could talk about those pros and cons for hours possibly. But the thought that I continually go back to is this. Most church growth strategies look to the secular business world for their modeling. They look to man's principles. And the problem with that is this. When we look to man's principles, we're going to get what man can build. And at best bet, we're going to get man results. And man results will not last. The secular church model don't last. Psalm 127, verse 1, says these words, Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In order to really grow God's church, I think we have to ask this question. What is God's plan for growth? What is God's plan for growth? And the truth is, it says here in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus talking to Peter. He says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What do we get from that? Christ is building his church. What we have to do is we need to find out how we can partner and come alongside him in this process. Because like I said, if we build on man's principles, we're going to get man's results. But if we build on God's principles, we will get a church that only God can build. 
And not only will we get a church that only God can build, we'll have a church that the gates of hell will not overpower. And here in our passage today, Paul gives us specifics of God's plan to build his church and how we can each get involved and be a, a, do our individual parts in this involvement for a common goal. He starts our translation, or starts our, our passage. My translation uses the word now. Yours might say the word but. And in it, really what he's saying is on the other hand. He's switching from that unity that he talks about in the first six verses to a diversity in these next couple of verses. He's saying this, I want you all to be one church, but within that church you each have individually been graced with gifts by Christ. And I want you to use those diverse gifts for the glory of God and the building of his church. There is a common goal here. The best picture I would use is because this is where I live, a sports team. If you know sports, each team has a common goal. That common goal, unless you're certain teams, is to win. You want to win. That's basically what it boils down to. And in that, if you want to win, the offense needs to score, and the defense needs to keep the other team from scoring. No matter what sport it might be, whatever team sport it might be, that's where you find yourself. And within that, the the sports basic rules are score, don't let the other team score. In that, there are individual on the teams that know the goals. And they step into their role on the team to reach those goals. They, they work at that. I'll use football as an example because I think it's probably the best picture of it all. Because in football, you have all different positions on offense that have specific goals. You don't have a whole lot of 350-pound quarterbacks. There's a couple of them out there. I've seen them. But in it... You have those guys that are linemen, and they have a goal to protect the quarterback. The quarterback has his job, the wide receivers have their jobs, the running back has their jobs, and they each have their own jobs to work together for a common goal to score in which to win. Defense, same thing. You have your linemen, you have your linebackers, you have your safeties, you have your defensive backs, each different giftings. Each work together for the common goal. That is the picture of the church. This is the body of Christ. See, God has, by grace, called you and I. He has saved us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And He has sealed us by the Holy Spirit. That is what we call saving grace. But God has also given us the grace of sanctification or what we might call enabling grace, or ministry grace, which are grace gifts that he gives us roles within the body of Christ. He gives us jobs within the body of Christ. The problem with the church, one of the biggest issues we run into, is too many people have accepted the gift of saving grace, but have not received the gift of enabling grace, of ministry grace that allows us to minister in and to the body of Christ. See, ministry grace or enabling grace, the definition is this. It's the ability to perform the task God has called us to. Simple. And Paul talks about in Psalm, or he refers back to Psalm 68, as he talks about it in our passage here, to describe the giving of these gifts, this grace in verse 8. It says these words, For it says in Psalm 68, When he ascended on high, he took the captives captive, and gave gifts to the people. This psalm actually refers to a tradition. 
And that tradition is when a king would lead his army to victory and set free his people from the bondage of the enemy, basically set free the slaves and bring them back, he would actually parade the enemy in front of his people and then he would take the plunders or the spoils of the victory and he would pass it out among his people. He would give, he would basically take from what he just won and pass it out to people. This psalm is, is pointing towards that, but Paul is saying and referring back to it that Jesus has defeated sin and death and Satan and he has set captives free. Those of us who are in bondage were prisoners of sin and to death. And he says, Basically, he took the wealth that he took from Satan of that victory and in the forms of gifts of grace, he gives them to us. They're not to be confused with natural talents, of course, but spiritual gifts that come to us as a member of his family through the Holy Spirit. For what purpose? Well, we'll go back around to it. To build up the body of Christ, to build up his church. This is God's plan for church growth. But before we get to that, Paul, kind of like back in chapter 3, he had that weird rabbit trail of ADD thoughts that went completely off. Verses 9 and 10, he does it again. It makes me so happy that I, I can be like Paul and just run on rabbit trails. But this is what he says in verse 9. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. Here, Paul is talking about descending and ascending. And you might ask, what is he talking about? What does he mean? Well, guess what? You're not the only one if you ask that question. Because literally for centuries, scholars have been trying to figure out what exactly he means. Does it mean he descended to earth as in part on putting on flesh? Does it mean that the Holy Spirit descended on mankind at Pentecost? Does it mean that Jesus descended into a place where the departed spirits were at and he proclaimed his victory over sin and death because his death and resurrection defeated Satan? The answer is yes. It really is. I mean, there's, there's so much here. And the reason why I say yes, because each and every one of those points that scholars kind of hang on to are backed up by other scripture. And it makes sense. But the good thing is, there's nothing in that that's going to create a church split. Nobody's like, no, we can't meet with you because you believe a different way of dissension. That's not the way it is. And the even better thing is, is Paul clarifies and brings everybody together in unity in verse 10. Because he says these words, Christ is our ascended Lord. Christ is our ascended Lord. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, he says, he came all the way down and became a man. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11, he said he ascended all the way up, that Christ is above all. In our passage here, he says Christ fills all. Christ gives gifts to all. And we should live in awe of his generosity as well as his authority. We should live that way, maybe walk worthy. He gave us those gifts so we could use them and use our lives for him and his church. And really, there are two things that we see here, maybe two things that we have to answer questions of before we move on. The first question would be this. What are spiritual gifts? Maybe you know, maybe you don't. Maybe you know what yours are, maybe you don't. What are spiritual gifts? And the second question is this. Why does he mention the authority of Christ here? What is the point of making that rabbit trail and and bringing that into this specific part and trying to challenge the Ephesians as well as us? Well, let's look at the first question. What are spiritual gifts? Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. 
1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. They list approximately 20 gifts. Which doesn't mean that's all the gifts, by the way, but it does cover the majority. A spiritual gift, by definition, is this. God-given abilities or skills that enable a believer to perform a specific function in the body of Christ with effectiveness and ease. Here's something else you need to know. Every believer has one. We receive them at salvation, and there's many that would actually argue that we can receive more after salvation. Again, not a sticking point that we need to divide over. Different people believe different things in that way. They're used to fulfill God's calling for us. He wants to see His church grow, and He gives us the gifts to make that happen. There are varied gifts to fill different roles. Now, they might not be all equally visible. They are all equally important. Not everybody's going to be the pastor, preacher, teacher, but the people who have the gifts that are behind the scenes are just as important to see that unity in the body grow. Just like going back to the football team, the, if the left guard isn't doing his job, the quarterback's going to feel it. Okay, that, that's just the reality of it all. So we have to remember everybody doing their job is equally important. Next thing we understand is they all come from God. They don't come from somebody else. We're not told, hey, you have this. God gives them to us. And the last thing is, is they're not for our individual good, though we will have a feeling of satisfaction when we are completing the tasks that God has given us and we are using them. They're not for us. They're for the common goal of glorifying God and growing His church. And the best way to figure out what your gifts are, there are tests. There are things you can do online. There are books you can read. All those are fine and dandy. But I'll tell you the best way to figure it out is get involved in ministry. Get involved in ministry. And as you do, what you're going to do is you're going to learn through experience. Is this the thing that fills me as I fulfill the Great Commission? Or is this the thing that drains me? If it's something that drains you, find something else. If you love little kids, and you love to teach them, and love to see them grow, well, guess what? That's probably a gift that God has given you. If that room scares you half to death, and you get drained before you even walk in the door... Don't volunteer. It's okay. It's okay. The people who do have that gift should do it. The people who have other gifts should do that. And so as we look at that, we need to understand the church needs people playing different positions to be unified and effective as a team. That is where we find ourselves as the body of Christ. This is why some people have some gifts and other people have other gifts. The second question I had up there was... Why does Paul drag in the authority of Christ into this speech, into, into this writing to the church? Why did he bring it in here? And really, I think it's basically because as believers, we can apply Christ's authority over all that we do in our spiritual gifts. If you've been called to minister, he is here, and his authority over all is here with us. If we are called to evangelize, He is here and His authority over all is with us. When we serve, He is here and His authority over all is with us. When we face spiritual warfare, part of the reason why Paul mentions spiritual warfare at the end of this book is because the things we've been called to do are not going to be accepted gently. There is going to be a fight. But the great thing is, is that when we hit that fight, when we run head on to the the gates of hell, by the way, gates don't move. This is us attacking hell. When we run head on into that, He is there and His authority over all is with us. 
when we pray that His will be done and not ours, when we sing a song that says, I lay me down, I'm not my own, I am yours and yours alone. We can say those words, but for it to hit and impact us and change us, we have to understand we need the power of Christ and He is there and the authority comes with it. When we are praying for His kingdom to grow, His church to grow and not mine, He is there. When we're focusing on growing it and we're waiting the return of the King, He is here. Jesus, the victorious Son of God above all, is here and He generously gives us gifts to use for His kingdom and the unity of His church. By the way, that's not a bad side note, Paul. If you're going to do an ADD moment, that's a good one. Then he comes back to the main part of the passage. And Paul mentions the positions of leadership in the church. And and he he doesn't so much go along the, the gifts listed, but the fact that the leadership that is gifted is a gift to the church. I'm not taking any pass on the back, just saying that out loud. Please don't think, well, Matt, that's awfully egotistical. I've been told that lots of times in my life. It's okay. I, I can deal with it. But here's what we have to see. He's listening and saying, this leadership is in place for a reason. That reason is because he cares for his church. And what is that leadership? We well, list out four different uh, uh, giftings here uh, of people. He says, he himself, in verse 11, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So we have four of them here. Even though you see five words there, there's four things here. The first one is apostles, second is prophets, third evangelist, and fourth is pastor-teacher. These are all gifts of leadership. To do what? Well, verse 12 we'll get into in a minute, but it's to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To build up the body of Christ, the church, until we all reach unity, growing into maturity. So let's look at these four positions. And just take a quick minute to see it. See, apostle, in a general sense, actually just means one who is sent. A sent one. But a more specific sense that Paul is using here, it actually refers to one of the twelve who were foundational. Both literally, because Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says, these are the ones that the church was built on. And well as, as figuratively, they're the foundation that they got the church started. They wrote letters that became part of the New Testament and they taught its doctrine that they had heard straight from Jesus' mouth. These are the apostles. So from a specific sense, let me just tell you this. Because you'll hear people call themselves the apostle in some other uh, church denominations. Apostles don't exist anymore since the foundation of the church is already built. But from a general sense, apostles could be considered those who are officially sent out from the church in the form of a church planter, in the form of a missionary, or something of that sort. So first you have the apostles. Second, you have the word prophet, a fourth teller. More than a future or fortune teller, a fourth teller, giving messages directly from God that also, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, say, built the foundation of the church. So like apostles in this sense, they no longer exist. But there is a general sense to the word that's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. This is what Paul writes there. He says, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. So basically what he's saying, a modern day prophet is this. It's a person who applies God's word to God's people. It is a a person who's been given insights into a person's life, into the life of a church, into the life even of a nation, in order to, as it says here, strengthen, encourage, and even console. That is the prophet. 
Evangelism, or evangelist, excuse me. Evangelist, this one is kind of a fun one. It's a person who's gifted in sharing the gospel with people, people, either in a one-on-one situation or a corporate situation or corporate setting. And they're able to share the gospel with ease. And they have a special ability to make the gospel plain and easy to understand for those who don't believe. They have a great ability to encourage people that are hesitant to take that next step in their faith journey to take that step. Through the use of their gifts, people respond. Let me just take a quick little side note here. That's not me. I am not an evangelist. I know men and women who have this gift, and I am blown away by the results. Some of you may remember uh, about eight, ten years back, Mike Napier, who used to go here. Uh, he was actually on the Evangelism and Missions Committee uh, at uh, Baptist Convention. Took up a, a church in, in Aztec, uh, New Mexico. But man, Mike, I swear, he could... He could preach to a wall and it would give its life to Christ. It, it didn't matter. He had just this amazing gift to do it. And I'd just be like, how do you do that? And it's strictly here as a gift. I don't have that gift. But here's what I also need you to understand. That doesn't mean I don't get to evangelize. Or that I shouldn't evangelize. See, I, I have, I've heard lots of people say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so therefore I don't evangelize. We all have the gift of the gospel. And we've been given that gift and we've also been given the great commission in Matthew 28 where it says, go and make disciples. In Mark 16 and 15, we have another commission that says, go and preach the gospel. He wasn't just talking to the evangelist. He was talking to each and every believer and follower of his. Here's what you need to know. Our motto, come as you are. As a matter of fact, Corey just put it up here on our drums. Looks amazing. I love it. Come as you are, be changed, go change the world. If I could go back and do it all over again, we've been a church now for a little over 13 years. If I could go back to day one when, when I was writing all the different things and taking all the different notes, I would only change one word in that. I would say, come as you are, be changed, go change your world. Go change your world. And the reason why I would do that is because in Paul's second letter to Timothy, one of the last letters that he wrote, he wrote these words in verse Five of chapter 4. It says, But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. You each have a ministry. And we're going to talk about that. That's part of my job is to help equip you to do that ministry. Part of Bruce's job to equip you. Part of Kyle's job. Even as he sang and said, hey, don't forget to sing oh, 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 because that's very spiritual. That is him equipping you to do the ministry. We all have a job to equip each other to do the ministry. You have your ministry. And as we have that, we see the church grow. By fulfilling our ministry and all of us have it, we change our world. We'll get to that in a second. Last words here was pastor-teacher. While these are two different gifts mentioned elsewhere, Paul here links them together. Basically, one gifting with two branches. One branch, you have a man who has been empowered to shepherd the flock by meeting the day-to-day needs of their congregation, by counseling, by, by comforting, by, by guiding, and even confronting. The other branch enables them to feed their sheep through the teaching and preaching of the word. And while the apostle and prophet roles are different today than when Paul first wrote them, the evangelist and pastor teacher, they have remained the same. One thing we should all take away from this is something I've already said. God's gift of leadership was given to care for his church. 
to lead his church, to grow his church. He gave them a very specific role. Why? Well, that's where we find verse 12 through 16. The why we have leadership gifts. The how do we do these leadership gifts and how they help with the spiritual gifts that we each have that exist in the body of Christ. How does that all come together? Well, here's what it says those gifted leaders are given to the church for. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up by the power of working of each individual part. Paul lays out three purposes here. Three purposes that he gifted the ministry of leadership to the church. The first one is the immediate purpose found in verse 12. Second is the intermediate purpose found in verses 13 through 15. And then the ultimate purpose found in verse 16. So let's first look at the immediate purpose. God's gift of leadership, equip every believer to work towards the building up of the body of Christ. You know, all my years of reading the Bible, I have never seen an endorsed church model in the Bible where pastors and teachers are the paid professionals that do all the work while the congregation sits back and watches. Never seen that. But too many churches and too many in the church tend to lean that way. They tend to see it that way. They think Christianity is a spectator sport. And they think it's a spectator sport where we watch the professionals do the things that they do best and then on Monday morning we judge them. How good did they do? Was it up? That, that kind of Monday morning quarterback. See, that's ESPN's model. They sit back, they watch, and then they judge on Monday. That is not God's model. God's model is actually listed right here. It's a model that we see leadership training up and equipping members of the body and teaching them to learn how to function in new ways within the body, using their spiritual gifts for the benefit and the whole of the body under the direction of that leadership. Honestly, I said up front, there's a lot of models for church growth. But Paul says right here, this is how we build up the church. This is how we reach unity. This is how we mature. This is the immediate purpose that God gives to the leadership. Then there's an intermediate purpose. Promote unity, maturity, stabilize, and, and, and really have the doctrine be a point, place of stability, and then also authentic, loving speech. It says promote unity. We talked about last week, the seven ones. While we may not agree on everything, these things are where we need to be unified. As a matter of fact, he says this in the, in the passage we've read, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. Faith is a major doctrinal issue. Faith in those doctrinal issues like the Trinity. That's something where we need to be unified. The full deity and humanity of Christ. The virgin birth. The atoning death of Jesus on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. The resurrection of Christ. The salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. The inerrancy of scriptures, which means it is without error. Basically, these are the non-negotiables of Christianity where we need to find ourselves. And then the verse also says the knowledge of God's Son. We need to be unified in the knowledge. Those are the core teachings. And guess what? The core teachings all center on the work and life of Jesus Christ. 
on who He is. It's my job as a pastor teacher to make sure that you know it and you grow in it, both here on a Sunday morning, that's why I'm not giving watered-down messages where I pull punches, and to challenge you to do it on your own. Because whatever you get here in the 45 minutes, some of you shut off about 15 minutes, so you only get the opening story. Whatever you get here doesn't just be the only thing you hear all week long, but for you to be involved in your Bible reading, involved in hearing other teachers do their things on, on our, our connection groups or whatever it might be. We want you to be growing in it. See, here's the problem. If we're not doing that, we don't have the doctrinal stability and the maturity in Christ, and we won't be growing in it. The sad part is, sad truth of the matter really is, is that most people don't know why they believe what they believe. They, they sit in church, and there's people who've been going to church for 50 years, and they still don't know why they believe what they believe. They've just been told it, so that's good enough for them. They've never really been anchored in it. If they ever get challenged, as this passage says, they're going to be tossed to and fro like kids in the wind. Or they're going to not have that stability, and somebody that's got a clever tongue is going to twist some things around. I see it all over the church right now. Maybe you do too. The, the worldly beliefs that are being pounded into the church, and because people have no foundation and have no actual knowledge of the Scriptures, they're like, sure, bring it in. Who cares about a little bit of extra sin? Bring it in. That's not okay. That's absolutely not okay. And we see it here. We see it in all religions, in all cult-like groups. Bruce and I talked about it this week. How easy people are deceived because they don't know the truth. They don't know it. They fall for counterfeits because they don't know the real thing. They don't know Jesus. They know about Jesus, but they're not growing in Him. That's why the leadership is here to equip us to do the ministry and help others to do it as well. Then we have the ultimate purpose mentioned in verse 16. The ultimate purpose says this, From Him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by proper working of each individual part. The ultimate purpose, the growth of the body through the cooperation of all of its members. All of its members. Here's something I realize, especially this week, because I rode on roller coasters. The human body is healthy when all of its parts are operating properly and working in harmony. I'm a big fella, and roller coaster rides are a little bit not for big fellas. And so this guy, he sat me down, and I buckled up, and I got latched down, and he went, Hah! and all the latches went like this. So I sat like this for the entire duration of a ride, and I was not having pleasant Christian thoughts inside of my brain <laughs> towards that gentleman who did that to me. But the next morning I woke up and I'm like, why can I not move my shoulder? And then I realized it's because it wasn't working in harmony with the rest of my body. It had been jacked up. And I was not happy. And all the way home on the bus, I'm like, urgh, urgh, trying to get comfortable. You guys know what that's like. When the body is not working together, you know it. Well, it goes the same for Christ's body. It goes the same. The church finds itself where if it's healthy and all the members are submitting to the authority of Christ, or as this says, growing up into the head, and walking in the Spirit and contributing to the faith community by using their gifts and talents, man, the church is an amazing machine. But when it's not, we know it. 
As the body grows and the member grows, the members grow and feed on the Word and minister, man, we minister to each other, we minister outside the body, we're doing exactly what Christ has done, but when we don't, it all, we feel it. And guess what? It's not a process that happens overnight. It takes time. And as maybe you remember as a teenager, as you were growing, anybody else have those wake up in the middle of the night screaming leg pains because you got those growing pains and everything's just happening? Sometimes that's going to happen in the church too. There's going to be those growing pains. But as God works through the individuals and their gifts, He is going to build us up as a healthy body. We need to trust His process and not try and do our own. We need to contribute our gifts for the good of the whole community. So here's my challenge to you. Reading this passage, there's a couple of things that really stood out to me that I just want to speak into you. First one is this, the knowledge of Christ. He said, grow up into the knowledge of Christ. Know Him. Know Jesus. It all centers on Him. The more you know about Him, the more you will grow. The more you grow, the more you realize it all centers on Him. It's like this crazy cycle that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and we become more like Him and we become less like us. Know Him. Have knowledge in Christ. The second thing is he mentions is unity of the faith. Know why you believe what you believe. Know why you believe what you believe and never even better start, starting point, know what you believe. Not just know why you believe what you believe, but just know what you believe individually and in groups. Because that leads to doctrinal stability. Can I tell you, don't get tossed around by unbiblical teaching just because someone twists the Bible to fit their agenda. Don't, don't follow for that. Don't, don't chase after that because it sounds better. Or it sounds, we'll use the word more loving, and we're going to talk about that here in a second. We tend to just accept things because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. We need doctrinal stability. We need to know why we believe what we believe and understand that our agendas need to be guided by the Bible, not the Bible needs to be guided by our agendas. Don't let that knowledge that we have, though, puff us up. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't let it puff you up. Balance out your knowledge with love, but don't let that love cause you to throw out the truth. Balance out your love with the knowledge of the truth. Can I just tell you this? It's possible to be kind and biblically sound. It's possible for both. And we need to be trying for that and striving towards that. Again, going back to those gifts, Christ is with us and his authority is with us and we have the power with us to do these things. My last thing is this. Let's work together. Let's work together and walk worthy for the glory of God. I love this church. I have lots of people come in and tell me they, they really love the family atmosphere of this church, that we're welcoming, that we are kind to each other, that, that we help each other out. If you are serving, thank you. If you are not, find out where you can get plugged in and let's see the body of Christ grow. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are and thank you for your words that challenged me all week. I had so much more that I had written down, but God, I pray that you're already speaking to hearts with with what we have. For what Paul has challenged us with. Thank you for the, the role that you've given me. God, don't ever let me get puffed up and think I'm better than I am or think more highly of myself than I ought. Because 
even as I look at that Philippians 2 passage, you came, you descended in humility and took on the form of a servant so that you would one day rise, defeat death, defeat Satan, and bring the captives home. God, may that be our attitude, that we take on the form of humility, but at the same time, be doctrinally sound, be be based in your word, know you more, grow in you more. So many challenges here, God. I pray that you are speaking to us. I pray that you're guiding us and whoever you might be talking to this morning on where they might even get involved in your body to serve, to see your body grow. May you have the glory for changing hearts and minds. I pray in your name, amen.